I'm Hemant Mehta, and I'm flying solo today. You're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. You can now listen to all of our episodes and see show notes at FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com. By the way, we now have a merchandise shop on the website. So if you want your podcast swag, and you know you do, go to our website and click on the store tab. Kathy Lynn Grossman is the senior correspondent for Religion News Service, a wire service for faith-based news. She often writes stories involving research and statistics, so a lot of demographic issues. She also worked for more than two decades for USA Today. So, Kathy, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. So one of the questions I have for you as a religion reporter and as someone who's an atheist and who reads this stuff is— is it possible for religion reporters to really be objective on this issue? Because everyone's coming in with some worldview of their own, whether they're religious or not. How do you? How does anyone remain objective on that end? Well, I'm going to give you a circuitous answer. Okay. Let me start out by saying that what are the chances that people who cover the political beat have no personal political views mm-hmm. on their own? What are the chances that people who cover um, sports competitions have no favorite team of their own. I think you could point to any beat that is a serious reporting beat, and the likelihood is that the people who are covering it will have their own personal opinions. The concept is that you recognize what, how those opinions might create a screen for you. They might affect how you see or what kinds of questions you ask, and you work around that. You pay attention to being sure that you are presenting a full picture of somebody's point of view and somebody's actions. One of the things and that I don't, comes I don't up. Think that, I don't think that religion reporters are any more or less stressed over whether they can be objective <laughs> because they have a religion point of view in their personal lives or don't have one than somebody covering politics on the political beat. I'm pretty sure those people have private opinions. Sure. Do you think it's worthwhile uh, for, you know, obviously when you're writing a hard news story, uh, yeah, there is, you're supposed to be objective and that's good journalism. Do you think there's a value, and I would say this for political reporters too, to be very upfront with saying, you know, this is what I personally believe or not. Uh, would religion I think reporters I think, do that too? Uh, yes, there are some religion reporters who do do that. I am not one of them. I come from the very old school. I don't know how much of this is, in fact, literally old school, like I'm older than everybody else is, like you. (laughs) Uh, But um, the world that I grew up in and I still believe in was that the reporter is not the story. It's it's a fairly recent phenomenon that every story is like my summer vacation. It's how I see the world. Uh-huh. It, you know, I don't actually think anybody gives a toot about my summer vacation or my personal vision of something. I'm not the story. So I'm often asked, almost always by evangelicals, um, you know, what is my walk with Christ? And <laughs> I always answer, I'm not the story. Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't matter how I answer. It derails the interview. It completely changes. When you introduce yourself into the discussion, that person is then reacting to you. They're not talking about their point of view, why they came, and why are you calling them? You're calling them because they're in the news for some reason, Mm -hmm. because you want to know their experience or their opinion. And as soon as you bring yourself into the equation, you're altering what you're going to hear from that person. I 
I completely understand where you're coming from. Do you think it's hard for, uh, for example, an atheist reporter to do a fair story on an evangelical issue or vice versa? Do you think it's harder? Not that they can't do it, but if it's harder to do. No. I think good reporting is hard. It's equally hard for everybody. And I think that if, if, you, if you assume that you can only write easily, that it won't be hard, um, if you're only writing about people with whom you personally agree and that you have to stretch a little to talk to people you don't agree with, um, okay, well, stretch. And if you're not willing to stretch, what are you doing in the business? Sure. What, what makes a religion reporter really good? How do you know they're really good at what they're doing? <laughs> well, everybody has their own idea about what's really good. And I will tell you, and, I, and this is sort of a sideline here, but I do not want to in any way put down the people who write personal columns. Sure, I think if, sure. you were doing a, if you were doing a personal point of view essay um, or blog, and everybody knows they're coming to learn what you have to say or what so-and-so has to say about their, you know, through their lens on the world, um, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. Oh, sure. I didn't the take problem, that personally, and I know that... You're hopping back and forth. Right. I think in terms of... I, I come... And this is, once again, I recognize this is a minority point of view, <laughs> that the, the direction that journalism has go, is going makes it actually increasingly harder to find, as a reader, to find straight-up news reporting. It's almost impossible to find on television. Um, years ago, you could tune in to CNN... And you actually got the actual news story. Now you just get people commenting on the news story. Um, and that's what's going on at all the cable stations. And this is something <laughs> I've seen at Religion News Service, where you do have the, the straight-up reporting and you do have opinion uh, writers have who do a, columns We as have well. a wave of bloggers. Yeah. We have a, and they're extremely popular. Extremely popular. And people come to them because they want to know that person's point of view on the world. Um, what's happened with readership, whether it's at RNS um, or anywhere else, is that we tend to read only the people that agree with us. <laughs> you know, um, we're just not, I don't spend a lot of time watching a cable station that takes a point of view that doesn't suit me personally. Yeah. Unless I'm spinning the dial for a story, in which case I will watch a range of views. Right. Otherwise, I'll just settle down to listen to the people I already agree with. Um, just like everybody else does. Right. Um, um, so it, that, that is an issue. But I think that there needs to be a place where you just actually tell the story. I was so thrilled to see the Nobel Prize go to the Belarusian um, writer, whose name I'm not going to mangle for your, reader, yeah. for your listeners. But I loved that it went to not only to an investigative journalist, but to someone whose format was oral histories. She wanted other people to tell their own stories. I think that that's incredibly powerful. That is fantastic. I I know the I saw briefly the the writer in question who won that prize, and I haven't had a chance to check out what work she did. But that sounds uh, sure, interesting. Well, one of the major things that she did was voices from Chernobyl. Mm. Um, she also did a book, um, the name of which now escapes me, on women's voices from wartime. Okay. So let me ask you about journalism as a business, because this is a question that I know you have a lot of Oh, you're going to make me with. cry. I am going to make you cry for a little bit. 
Um, and here's the question. Like, what I don't get, I know journalism as a whole is, is a really tough business right now, but it seems like religion ought to be one of those beats that is more popular than ever because it infuses celebrity culture. It infuses sports like never before. Um, so religion, in essence, that should be like a, as big as sports is, in a sense, that everyone's interested in it, it seems. Everyone has a, you know, Kim Davis, everyone has an opinion on this issue. Um, but what is happening from your perspective in the religion journalism world? Well, multiple things are happening. First of all, whether it's religion, sports, music, um, people don't want to pay for content. They want to watch it online, and they don't want to pay for it. So whether it's you know RNS or anybody else, um, journalism is suffering, and then religion is suffering with it. Um, now, in terms of the, the, how the religion topic is so significant in so many parts of our culture and our politics, the good news is that, that we now recognize that is true, and the bad news is we now recognize that it's true. <laughs> let me, let me, um, here's the thing. When I, when I created the religion beat at USA Today, which is where I worked, for, as you said, for two decades before I came over to RNS, um, I made it my mission to be available to and participate in across the newsroom. When Pete Rose said um, he would leave it up to the umpire in the sky whether he should go into the <laughs> Hall of Fame, I called an ethicist and I said, hey, you know, Bob Parham, back to the Center for Ethics. I said, hey, Bob, you yeah. know a lot more about the umpire in the sky. What do you think he'd say? <laughs> and then I trotted over to the sports department and handed off his quotes. Uh -huh. um, so I, I, I spent a lot of time equipping, training, handing off sources across the newsroom so that religion coverage became infused into other people's work. So to a certain extent, I made myself expendable. Yeah. So I'm like, well, you know, they didn't, re they didn't, re they didn't replace me on that beat. Of course, they eliminated a bunch of beats. It's not just religion. They eliminated yeah. the science beat, for example. Can you imagine? Yeah, like we um, needed more than ever so before. What I had done was equip the other writers the political writers, other writers, to have sources and to recognize that religion was a part of their story. And so they've begun to carry that, that through in other stories. And I think that they do a reasonably good job. Of course, the other smart thing they do at USA Today is that they partnered with Religion News Service, so they want <laughs> a lot of our stuff. <laughs> so how does that work? For those who aren't familiar with Religion News Service as a wire service, like what, what is, the, what is the, uh, the business model you guys have? Well, we're sort of bifurcated. We have, um, we were originally, just like Associated Press and just like everybody else, we supplied news to print publications because that's what there was in the world. So we had subscribers, magazines, newspapers, television stations even, that would um, pay us a fee to have the right to reprint our work. And they would get every day the budget of the stories, the list of the stories that we were put, putting out that day. With the advent of the Internet, we, of course, established our own website. And what our website does now is we publish, of course, all of the staff-written stories are on the website at www.religionnews.com. That's two ends in the middle there, folks. <laughs> and a uh, little, little ad in there. Don't worry, we'll and, put a link. <laughs> uh, okay. And then, um, but we also added a whole team of opinion writers, bloggers, special commentary writers, and so forth, 
that Jonathan Merritt, Jana, we, Jana Reese, um, and others who are writing a point of view two, three times a week, and they are available on the website so that we have something for the web reader who comes to the page just for that. Now, uh, we will often take one or two or three or more posts from the from the eight or nine bloggers that we have and reconfigure them as a story and send them to wire subscribers because there's there's a lot of interest in those. Um, but that does reward the online reader as well and give them something special that they wouldn't you know, they wouldn't have to wait to see if the Desiree Morning News or a paper in Ireland or the Washington Post or any number of others picked up our story. What do you think is the hardest thing about the the business model? And I don't know if it's any different for religion writers as journalists as a whole. Like, what is happening right now for those who aren't familiar with the the journalism world? Like, where are writers going? Because the newspapers don't seem to be hiring as many journalists. They're laying people off. Like, what's going on? Where are writers going these days? Well, uh, writers are going like I did to um, to the Internet. I mean, in coming to RNS, I wasn't thinking of the 100 subscribers from California to Ireland. I was thinking of the website, which is where we have, you know, a million plus eyeballs every month. Mm-hmm. Um, so that we have, that's where I was thinking that I would get the story out because that's where people are turning to read. You know, they're reading on their phone, they're reading on their iPad, they're reading on their computer, their laptop. Um, about 15% are still reading on their desktop. God bless them. That's me. <laughs> um, you know, Stone Age Grossman here. Um, but I think that, that that's where we're going, those of us who are still employed. Um, the rest of them are going into, you know, wherever they can find a job um, and looking at the next stage of their careers. Um, I think that part of the problem is um, they're faced by every publication. Everybody whose advertising model is based on print has a major issue. And because we started out, like print publications started out, we started out with a subscriber model fed by print publications. Some of our business health depends on those people continuing to buy us and use us. But the readership and the advertising is shifting and shifting to online, and online ads are just not bringing in the money. And it doesn't sound like it's getting any better with ad blocking software or anything. Uh, that, I can't speak to ad blocking software. I have no mm-hmm. idea. But um, I think that I don't think I'm giving out any proprietary secrets of RNS. I don't think I'm saying no. anything different than the Washington Post or the New York Times <laughs> is facing. I mean, I, I've seen stories that indicate that even with their huge success online, I think I read this and I could be wrong. So, mm-hmm. you know, save me if I am. But they're still getting 70% of the revenue from print. Mm-hmm. Who, who so, do you think is doing uh, it really well in terms of making the journalism model work? Well, when you say the journalism model, what model are you talking about? Are you talking about... I guess about... able to, to sustain reporters who can do the real reporting. Well, here we have a chicken and egg situation. Yeah. You know, um... It takes people who want to read the real reporting to build up the numbers, to make it appealing to the advertising, to make it, you know, to go. If people are all clamoring off to read listicles at BuzzFeed, (laughs) um, it's rough if you want to get some money to go do a big look 
at faith in the political campaigns or something. So let's talk about that for a second. Is this a new phenomenon for as someone who has covered religion for a while? Uh, this the 2016 elections seem so infused with religion, and I know that's because most of the attention has been on the Republican candidates right now. But is this a new phenomenon that you know we all seem to know about the religious beliefs of all of these candidates? Oh and... my God! Do I dare <laughs> ask if you were born when Jimmy Carter ran? I, I, I've never heard of Jimmy <laughs> Carter in my life. So. <laughs> You know, seriously. I mean, but um, let me tell you, you this. Know, like, when it comes to Jimmy Carter, yes, his religion is a big deal about him. When it comes to John F. Kennedy, I know about his religious beliefs. But I, I guess it seems like it's not just, oh, uh, I don't know, Ben Carson is an evangelical Christian. Rick Santorum is a Catholic. I, it's not just that. I know so much more about their religious views than well, I think I know about someone like here, uh, Kennedy. Here's why— there's a lot of reasons why the religion views of this huge array of candidates have become so much more prevalent in the coverage. And let's back up some. And let's think about who was reading and writing and living the news in the 60s, in the 70s. It was a majority Protestant country at media staffed by mostly Protestants for whom there were, there wasn't any they were looking in mirrors. They were talking about people like themselves. So the religious beliefs, if you had a, an Episcopalian or a Methodist running for president, well, you know, so what? That's what most of the country looked like. But the country has shifted dramatically. And you now have a much wider range of people. Um, the percentage of Protestants in this country is now slipped below the majority of Americans. Um, and, and certainly they disappeared from the Supreme Court, for example. Um, right. So you have, um, and you have a diverse um, range of people writing news to begin with. Then you have, from the um, 80s forward, the outspoken rise of the evangelical voice, differentiating itself from mainline Protestantism, and saying very publicly that what you believed had to shape your political policies. So it became increasingly relevant whether somebody was or wasn't of a certain religious background and whether, if at all, they plan to have that affect their policies intentionally. So you have now, the and, and you also have um, a, a media marketplace so that you have, if we didn't have nonstop news on every every potential platform, from your phone to your TV to your newspaper to your magazine, if we weren't surrounded by this to consume it, um, I don't think there would be this many people running. You know, if we didn't have so much news coverage, I don't think Trump would have bothered. Mm-hmm. How much attention could he get? Right. Do you um, think so? This, so yeah, so go ahead. Chicken and egg, you know, so, so you have... You have this huge array of candidates. You have a greater appetite for the individual voices to be heard. Do you remember when Clinton and Dole were running? It was a famous values election. Yeah, 96. Right, right, right. And Dole was out there beating the values drum and, you know, uh, the, the, the right values for the country. And Clinton's winning argument was, I have values. My job is to let you live by your values. I'm not mm-hmm. going to impose my values on you. And 
that resonated with more voters than, than the Dole point of view. Now, whether that's still true, I don't know. Um, you know, I asked political scientists whether the rise of the people with no religious identity, not all of whom were atheists, right. but... We'll talk um, about that. <laughs> right. People who have no brand. I like to call them the nuns because it's a lot easier. N-O-N-E-S, the nuns, no yeah. religious brand. Doesn't mean they're not spiritual or believe in God. Some do, some don't. But the rise of the nuns, now we're looking at one in four Americans who fall into the nuns category, which has just been a revolution of awareness in the 20 years that I've been looking at it. Um, and so this group, I said, well, why, why are we so flipped out over whether people who go to church are going to vote or not? Maybe the measurement shouldn't be. Maybe if you want to predict the next election, you should be looking at the nuns. Yeah. <laughs> and, well, yes and no. Um, the nuns have the numbers, but they don't vote. Yeah. Sorry. I'm yeah. sure you vote. You're, I'm sure you're a very oh, good Oh, I voter. vote, you but I, those, I express the same frustration. I vote stickers. Well, this but is the, the conversation we've had in the atheist world, which is, yeah, we either don't vote or we don't vote as a block, whereas the religious right is very good at voting and getting their people out. Well, people who are nuns um, are, tend to be knocks on other fronts. They're, <laughs> they're less likely to be joiners. Mm-hmm. They're not only not going to church, but they're not going to the Sierra Club, and they're not going to the bowling league, and they're not going to you know, play kickball or whatever. Isn't that a new thing now, people play kickball? I'm sure they um, do. But anyway, I don't go outside. I'm just by the computer. You know, I, I, I don't either, unless it's, <laughs> unless it's a, um, below 74 degrees. I do not yeah. do heat, which was bad since I spent four years in Florida. But um, the, uh, at any rate, they, they tend not to join. They tend not to vote. Now, some of that is also a factor of age. The nuns are heavily skewed to the young, um, under 35. And so there's a lot of things the young aren't doing. Do you think that's going to change in this election when, I mean, we've seen the nuns rise in the past, whatever, uh, post-Obama getting elected. Actually, I lie. After Bush and stuff. But do you think that's going to change as they have a chance to vote for a Democrat, because most of them are skewing Democrat. Is that going to? Ch- Do you think most of them will get out to vote in an election when you know there is so much up for grabs, or is that what they say during every election and young people well, just don't? I, I, you know, of course there's everything up to grabs. There was everything up to grabs in the first Obama campaign, right? And everything up to grabs every time anybody's been elected, right? Um, do I think that this particular election is very fraught? Um, well, yes, because um, I actually am a single issue voter. Mm-hmm. Um, my issue is the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Whoever wins is, is going to have Yeah, you could the flip court. the court however you want it to you flip. Mean, I, well, I personally would like many of these judges to live forever. They're not. <laughs> and right. someone is going to either lock in a conservative point of view forever right. or really make it a contest. Right. Um, so... And that's the question. Do you think those issues, whether it's the Supreme Court or whether it's abortion rights or uh, maybe less so LGBT rights this time around, will that get the nuns voting more than they might otherwise in, say, any other election? I think when no matter whose rights you're talking about, mm-hmm. that always leads back to the court. Yeah. So let me... Um, let me yeah. flip topic for a little bit here. What sure. is, because we talked about the Internet and the impact it's having here, what is the Internet doing to religion? 
uh, and I'll give you where I'm coming from on this. From an atheist perspective, I think having this open access to information and being able to talk to people who who are like-minded, that has done a lot to increase the percentage of nuns in the country, I think. Um, But I wonder, uh, you also brought up that a lot of these candidates are running because they have this, you know, ubiquity online and in the media and stuff. What has the internet done to your perspective as someone who covers religion? What's changed because of the internet? Well, let me start with the point that you made about atheists being able to find each other, to have a community online where they didn't have one before. Um, David Silverman was once talking about how, you know, when he was a little kid, he had to go to the library and find, like, the one book about atheists, uh, and maybe hope that you could get that book and nobody would yell at you for reading it. Mm -hmm. Um, And now, you know, he can find atheists anywhere right? um, because he's got the Internet as a tool. Back in 19... 91, when the uh, authors of the first American Religious Identification Survey published a book based on their survey, called, it was called One Nation Under God. It was Ian Meyer and um, um, Cosman, uh-huh. um, whose first name is suddenly Barry Cosman. Barry Cosman, thank yeah. you very much. Um, and a third writer. Um, and this book landed on my desk at USA Today, and the first Eris survey, American Religious Identification Survey, was the first major census of American religion. They asked 100,000 people across the country, so they had state-by-state breakdowns, which of course guaranteed me a cover position at USA Today, um, <laughs> yeah. of religious beliefs. This, this information was available nowhere else. The census doesn't ask religion. And it found that 8% of Americans claimed no religious identity the nuns, and nobody had ever recorded that before. And I did a big cover story about this, and I talked with them about this, and it was fascinating. It was a major dimension to this. So nine years goes by, and they did a repeat survey, and nothing makes a numbers nerd happier than trend data. (laughs) Oh, my God, a repeat survey. We have changed. This is rock my my life here. And sure enough, the number had jumped to nearly, to more than 15% for nuns. Uh-huh. So, of course, I went running that. I'm sadly, again, Meyer passed away, but um, Barry Cosman and I were talking, and he explained, and he said, look, people came out of the closet. Yeah. When they saw that number, when they heard about that number, they suddenly thought, I'm not alone. Yeah. So you had people who were probably long since... With any kind of statistical reporting like this, you have to think, were, there, were they always there, but they just weren't reported? Or, 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 or they, was it a new phenomena where somebody you know, becomes this to a greater degree? I think it's a little of both. And so they saw you know, this number made it safe to come out because you weren't, you know, suddenly there were as many of you as there were Methodists. <laughs> you yeah, know, you're as yeah. good as anybody else. <laughs> Take that, Methodists. Um, so, you know, or, or, or Lutherans and everybody else added right. up, a lot of these mainline groups. Um, so they, they were able to come out and be recognized. After that was the Internet Revolution. So not only was it no longer you're, you're alone in the dark, but you're not alone in the dark, and there's a whole bunch of people like you, and you can find them. Mm-hmm. You can find each other. So I think all of that combined 
to um, lead to um, a much higher number, now up to 24%, I believe. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, and even if you look at 18-year-olds and and stuff, it's even crazier. Right, well, a third of them. Yeah. But but here's the other factor that's gone on. As uh, there's a wonderful sociologist, Catholic sociologist, Bill D'Antonio, we were talking about mass attendance rates, and he said to me, the children of parents who don't go to mass tend to grow up and not go to mass. Mm-hmm. So what you're also seeing now is generational. You're seeing that you know today's 18-year-olds are the children of some of those nuns from the uh, 1991 census. Survey. This is uh, something I've noticed too. I mean, I, for the first time, I'm seeing a lot of second and third generation atheists. They're not exactly. just the kids of religious parents. It's fascinating. Right. Exactly. Their upbringing is so different. It's now <laughs> now young young atheists, the children of atheists. Um, I don't know if you did you watch the movie Divergent? Um, no, I did not. No. Okay. Well, people have to pick their their group. Right. Yeah. And usually you go to the group of your parents yeah. and then the divergent ones are the ones who veer off and join a different group instead. OK, um, that's that's a, a terrible shortcut of that movie. <laughs> but at any rate, yeah, um, the nuns also, however, have a low retention rate. A significant number of nuns grow up and become religious. It's not insignificant. Not I, I don't know whether it's most of them, but a whole bunch of them. They have one of the lowest retention rates. Of any group. So this gets me to a question about the nuns that I'm frustrated by. And I, and I wonder what you, as someone who, who really focuses on the trends and the statistics, uh, what do you think about this? I get frustrated because I know it's easy to kind of lump in the nuns, which is, like you said, atheists, agnostics, and and a whole bunch of people who believe in God but don't subscribe to any organized religion so they could believe any sorts of things. And that latter group is the bulk of the nuns. Ah, wait a minute. Yeah. There's another group you're forgetting Which about. Which one am I forgetting? Well, they're not that well known yet, but they're growing. Um, I did a story about this a couple years back. And I'm ca- I called them in that story. did not catch on as a term, sad, sad, sad <laughs> thing. But I called them the so what's. Um, the it's not ones, exactly a catchy term. The ones who are they're apathetic. They don't care about any of this. Yeah. If you want to say that you're an atheist or an agnostic, you've thought enough about this to pick yes. a category. Yes. Or you're vaguely spiritual. You walk out and you go, oh, pretty day. Thank you, God. Moving mm-hmm. on. You know, that's it. Yay, stars. Yay, sunshine. Um, but you don't have... You know, I haven't really thought it through. And then there are people who are like, religion, you know, excuse me, I'm busy. Right. You know, they're not thinking about it at all. It's not on the radar. They don't call themselves spiritual. They don't call themselves agnostic. They don't call themselves atheists. They haven't thought of, they're not giving it enough thought to even pick a group. And yeah. last I checked, that was up to six six percent. It's like my wife with it's like my wife with sports teams. It's like I, I, this is not something I care about whatsoever. I'm not a Cubs fan. I'm not not a Cubs fan. I just I, this is not an issue. She is not me. a Cubs fan. She is not know. a. That she doesn't do sports. <laughs> right. Sounds very serious to me. I mean, <laughs> oh. I, I spent five years in Chicago, and I got to tell you, if you're not a Cubs fan. 
You better turn in your credentials. I try to tell her this, and then she rolls her eyes. But this is the thing. But you're right. Like, there are a lot of people who just don't care about this at all. So here's here's the frustration, that, then. That what do we do with that? growing. Yeah. So why do I have to be lumped in with that person who doesn't care about this stuff? <laughs> well, maybe someday, maybe someday I'll be in charge of all the surveys. And, uh, I'll, I'll create a special category for well, you. And this is the thing: um, I kind of understand you know, it when I we're was, at least. I thought it was very interesting that Pew actually did create a category, and they will now break down their their landscape survey by atheist, agnostic, and nothing in particular. Yes. Yeah. But it was um, Lifeway Research, the evangelical research firm mm-hmm. out of um, Nashville. Ed Stetzer there. Um, actually had a question on a survey, which I just loved, which in which he asked people how much time they spend thinking about the meaning of life. Uh-huh. And a whole bunch of people don't spend any time on it at all. Yeah. Yeah, so this is a this is an interesting question because as much as we want to know what the trends are, it's it's sometimes hard to figure out because all of these people, all of these smaller groups are just kind of lumped together so you can't really say, well, you know, the, the lumping together. Excuse me, but yeah. lumping together. There's a lot of people who like to lump things together. David Silverman yes. is convinced that anybody who is not <laughs> part of a random religion, he's planting that big red atheist A on their on their heads. You know, right. it's like you're mine. You're yeah. really ours. You're just afraid to say so. And <laughs> right. I I don't think that's really kosher myself. Oh but. no, I I think you'll find plenty of allies on that front as well. Um, but this is the the question, like, I've heard, not from you, uh, but from other people, like, oh, the nuns are on the rise. That must mean more people don't believe in God. And it's true. More people, percentage-wise, don't believe in God than, you know, 10 years ago or something. But that huge rise isn't all atheists. That, like, I think uh, there was a story recently uh, that said something like, how many nuns believe in the supernatural? And it is a high percentage as if, right. you know, atheists believe in the supernatural, which is very much not the case. But that's kind of the issue when you have these giant categories. It, I don't know. It didn't strike well, me as very helpful. I, I don't actually spend, and this is, this is a problem. Yeah. But there are now more atheists than there are, possibly than there are Lutherans. Mm-hmm. Not quite as many as there are Methodists, but close. Um, certainly more than any of the other subgroups among Protestants. Um, and we don't spend any time analyzing what Methodists think about anything. <laughs> uh-huh. um, so I'm sorry, Methodists, I apologize. <laughs> You're very important. I'm sure if you come out with a big change on gay marriage, we'll cover the heck out of it. Right, right. But nonetheless, people are not terribly interested yeah. in, once you're within a group, <laughs> writing for the mass media about that group's issues and concerns yeah. doesn't really fly very well, unless it's something that bleeds across everybody. When the Episcopal Church first accepted a gay bishop, yeah. um, I was talking to a sociologist, one of my faves, um, Susan Harding, who's now retired from Santa Cruz. But Susan Harding said, you know, California, the Episcopal Church is the California religion. As it goes, so will go the nation eventually. (laughs) Um, You know, that's not quite so true anymore, but nonetheless, um, it was huge. It was front-page news. Yeah. Because 
this just had never happened, and the Episcopal Church is so, even though its numbers were tiny, it is so embedded in American cultural leadership that it was a, is a cross-cultural statement across all the religious brands. And are all the the other but Protestant now, groups like them? But now yeah. it's 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 there are very few things that are equally cross all brands. Sexuality crosses all brands, mm-hmm. um, but opinions on the death penalty doesn't don't. Mm-hmm. Opinions on um, gun control don't. Opinions on um, reproductive rights don't. So it's interesting to see how few things really do cross all brands. That is, it's a big change that, you're right. I've heard this before and I've noticed it myself too. Like, yeah, we have our own controversies within the atheist world and they probably wouldn't mean much to anyone else. Um, ah, but but what does what notice that what gets attention is when there are battles over how women are treated within atheism. Oh yeah, yeah. Now there's a topic that goes cross culturally. Mm-hmm. That will get readers from all directions. Absolutely. Uh, and how do you guys pick and choose which things are worth covering as a reporter? Uh, which is it based on the things that bleed across all the spectrums, all the different groups? Mm. Well, you know, it's a dinner plate. You've got your meat, your potatoes, <laughs> your broccoli, and your dessert. And we're covering all those things. I mean, I, when I would try to pick stories, I was looking for stories to tell that would explain things to people, that, you know, to educate people, to empower people. Here are things that you could know that could help you make decisions based on your own values. You know, how can you live by your values? Here's what you need to know. Um, And entertain people. I mean, everybody likes to have a good time. So I try to do a mix of those kinds of stories. You know, I've done a lot of stories on death and dying issues. I I don't, somebody asked me once why it is I got so interested in that subject, and I I don't think I really know why. Um, But I've done a lot of coverage on bioethics and particularly death and dying issues. Well, it's certainly something that affects all of us. I mean, and and it's something that everyone has an opinion on, yeah. And um, I've covered the surveys. Pew did a massive end-of-life survey stuff. I've looked at the controversies, you know, the death of Terry Scheibel, et cetera. But I've also been very interested in, in basically giving people information to make their own value decisions. You know, what are the arguments for doing X or doing Y, holding, withholding or providing treatment for certain kinds of things? And I'll talk to bioethicists who come from a religious perspective and bioethicists who come from a secular perspective. And I lay that out for readers, and they'll find their own path. Mm-hmm. Which stories for you are the hardest ones to write? Hmm. Interesting question. Interesting question. Um, hardest to write. I don't know. Hard is an interesting word because some things are are hard to write because they're terribly sad. They just break your heart. Mm-hmm. And some things are hard to write because you know you're wrestling with your own personal points of view. You're pushing yourself beyond what you personally would believe or think to make sure that you're giving 
a fair shake to the other side. I mean, here's an example um, many from many, many years ago. Um, I did the coverage for the Miami Herald, where I worked for US, before USA Today. I was at many years at the Miami Herald, and I, co- I covered um, the um, trials of people accused of being Nazi collaborators. And I sat down with Fyodor Fedorenko, was the first Nazi collaborator to be found, tried, and deported from the U.S. And I covered his case from the day the Justice Department came for him to um, when he was um, his Supreme Court appeal before he was extradited back to Russia, which promptly shot him um, because they thought he was collaborating with the Germans. Um, But I went to his home. And I knocked on his door the night before the Justice Department came because I had I'd got a source that had given me a name. And he lived on South Beach back when it was not Little Havana, expanded from Miami, when it was still uh, surrounded by elderly Jewish people, basically the people who looked like his victims at Treblinka. And I knocked on his door, and I said, you know, people are saying some really terrible things about you. <laughs> and I wanted to know, why, why would they say these things about you? What happened in your life here? Why are these people saying these things about you? And it was an extremely difficult emotional interview. Um, but he talked with me, um, and he never talked to anybody else again. <laughs> because, of course, by then he had lawyers, and he was not going to talk. But... I came back to the office to write the story, and one of my coworkers said, well, did you shake his hand? And I, you know, I I treated him with the courtesy I would treat anybody that I'm speaking to, and I did shake his hand. And I flippantly said to my coworker, I said, well, if he's convicted, I can cut my hand off. (laughs) And decades later, when he was finally extradited and then the news came out that Russia executed him, um, I was in the ladies' room washing my hands, and I looked down and I thought, huh, <laughs> I told Bob Liss I would cut my hand off, and here I am washing my hands. <laughs> so that, that was a tough story. Yeah, sounds like it. All right, I'm going to end so this. There's, there's different ways, There's different ways. you know, and things are sometimes, things are just tough logistically. Yeah. I mean, you probably did not have to run hoops to get credentials to cover the Pope. <clears throat> right. That may not have been something you were doing. Right. But, I mean, really, it was like running the marathon with your eyes shut. <laughs> um, I'll end this on a, on a, one last question that I have. Um, if this is, I don't know the answer to this, and I don't know if this is even a fair question, but let's suppose for a second Donald Trump said, you know, President Obama is a Muslim. If, if a reporter is covering that, they would, they would probably quote him saying that. And then I think they have an obligation to say, uh, no, he's not. Barack Obama's a Christian. Or, you know, if he, if uh, Trump said he's not born in the U.S., no, that's not true. He was born in Hawaii. We have the birth certificate. They have an objective obligation to do that, I would think. Um, so the question I have when it comes to religion reporting, what what happens when you talk about something like uh, this is a communion wafer that they say is the body of Christ? At what point should an objective reporter come in and say, uh, there's no evidence that Jesus is actually in that wafer. Like, what's the difference between those two uh-huh. situations? Well, the difference is that we're not going to argue 
religious doctrine with a religious organization. If the Catholic Church teaches this, then we will say this is what the Catholic Church teaches. You know, if I write about Easter morning, I don't say the day when Christ rose. I say the day when Christians believe Christ rose. Mm-hmm. Because many of my readers don't believe there was a Christ who rose from the dead. And so what you want to do is put things within the context of the religious doctrine, and you can say the doctrine of the Church is X. Uh-huh. And, you know, he's, he, you know, Donald Trump is scoffing at the Catholic doctrine of whatever. Um, or the Presbyterian, he says he's Presbyterian doctrine of whatever. But for us to get in there and start arguing or disproving the doctrine itself, mm-hmm. I think that's not our role. It, is that disproving it, though, to say this is what Catholic the, the Catholic faith teaches about something? No, um, that's not disproving it. That's no, 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 not that part. Context. But then following it up and then saying... Uh, there's no evidence of that. Is that a, is that inserting if, an opinion I, into that story? Uh, uh, yes, okay. I think it is because I think that you're truth squatting. You know, I'm not going to be the you know what was it the riverboat truth squatters from the Kerry election or something. You know, I'm oh, not going to yeah. truth squad. Um, swift boating. That's what that's it is. It. The swift yeah. boating. Yeah. You know, I'm not. I don't think it's our job to swift boat any religion's teachings. Um, I think that it is important to say that the Church teaches this. You know, I can say to you that my favorite color is scarlet. Yeah. And you can say to me, you know, color is a shifting thing, and some people don't (laughs) see the same color that you see. When you point to scarlet, I see, you know, baby pink. Yeah. You know, whatever. That's What's the point there? I'm talking about what I think. Fair and enough. so this is what the Catholic Church teaches, and it is not my, my job to swift boat it. Um, if I were doing a story on um, how do you document doctrine, a story which I'm certainly not equipped to do and don't plan <laughs> to, um, that might be a subject. But I think that's more of an academic subject. And I think that I'm not really sure what purpose it would accomplish um, but, you know, I'm from the generation that, that was taught to clap for Tinkerbell. So, um, you know about clapping for Tinkerbell, right? I, I know the reference, yeah. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Well, well, for your listeners who don't, in Peter Pan, <laughs> in the movie, when Tinkerbell is fading away, Peter Pan says, if you believe in fairies, clap your hands. And everybody claps and brings Tinkerbell back to life. I think they still do that on that NBC remake or whatever they did. Do they? I think okay, they did, great. yeah. Because <laughs> I, I, my daughter is 30, and I don't think she would have any idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much, Kathy, for your time. I appreciate it, and I'll uh, make sure there are you kept telling links. me I was right about stuff. I love that. <laughs> no, it's anytime. always fascinating to hear uh, from a religion reporter, especially because that's something that I think uh, a lot of atheists have a vested interest in because we like these stories. We're really interested in them, so... Uh, oh, yes. Big readers of <laughs> RNS. Keep it up. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois. The music was composed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at Patreon.com slash Hemant. That's He-Man T. We appreciate your support. And if you have any questions, feel free to email us at FriendlyAtheistPodcast at gmail.com. I'm Hemant Mehta, and we hope you'll join us next time. Thank you.